Welcome to the Beyond Numbers, COVID-19 and Society podcast. We are partners from the COVID Inform Horizon 2020 project, which looks at the COVID-19 pandemic through an intersectional lens. The past two years have flipped our lives upside down. The effects of the COVID-19 pandemic go far beyond physical health. COVID-19 has changed our everyday life, how we work and how we interact with other people. It has also challenged our well-being and mental health. But did it affect everyone the same? It is clear that the pandemic also uncovered and deepened the already existing inequalities in our society. This podcast is dedicated to examining those inequalities and the impact that different measures have on different groups, which is also the aim of the Govinform project. The project has received funding from the European Union's Horizon 2020 Research and Innovation Program. To learn more about the project, you can visit our website at www.govinform.eu or follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn or Facebook. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Beyond Numbers COVID-19 and Society podcast. As the name of the podcast suggests, this series is about more than numbers. However, today numbers are all we are going to talk about. But don't worry, as daunting as it may sound, me and my colleagues from the Covinform project will make sure that the topic of today's episode is accessible and exciting. Let me introduce them to you. My first guest is my colleague from the Covinform project, Diotima Bertzel. Diotima is a researcher at Cineo, and in addition to that, she is coordinating the Covinform project, which made this podcast possible. She has a background in communication science and philosophy of technology. In her research, she focuses on the intersection of science, society, and technology. The second expert I have the pleasure to introduce to you today is Dr. Nymph Aspel, who is a senior research analyst at Trilateral Research. Nymph has a background in health research, including projects incorporating artificial intelligence. She is an expert in study design, research ethics, and quantitative research methods, and is leading the development of the Covinform risk assessment model. Welcome both. I hope I didn't forget anything. It's great to have you here. All right. Thanks, Svetlana. Uh, it's really nice to join you and uh, Diotima for this conversation. I'm excited to get into it. Thank you, Svetlana. It's a pleasure to be here. Welcome both. As I hinted earlier, this episode will be about numbers. But what it is about them? Well, let me answer this one. Everything is about numbers. During the COVID-19 pandemic, we were constantly confronted with numbers. New daily cases, death rates, vaccination trials, and I could go on. The pandemic has really shown the importance of data science and statistics. But even more, it's stressed the need for a skill set to be able to interpret these graphs and numbers and tables. So before we deep dive into more complex topics, I would like to hear your opinion. Why do you think that the topic of today's episode is so important to discuss? So I think what we've seen in the past two years is that information is just key to everything. Uh, two years ago, information was all we had to fight the pandemic because there was no vaccine or no other treatment. So all we could do was follow behavioral guidance, like wash your hands, but don't touch your face. And what we also could observe was there was a lack of data all the time, particularly on vulnerable groups. 
yet this data was needed all the time because we needed to make political and public health decisions. So in my opinion, it's very important that we collect and interpret this data correctly. Yeah, yeah I, I totally agree. I think the pandemic challenged governments and we've seen examples of kind of appropriate and considered public health responses and also we've seen a lot of kind of poor decisions and kind of quick responses that maybe weren't entirely effective and particularly during the initial response back in early 2020 I think there's a lot of trial and error and some kind of um, unfortunate outcomes or devastating outcomes really but it is not the kind of sole reason for kind of lacking responses. I think government actors needed needed answers in real time. And um, but as Diatima mentioned, they also lacked that data or evidence very early on in, in the pandemic, which would really drive kind of decision making in to inform policies. So this kind of led to fragmented policies and responses, um, such as the lack of consideration for vulnerable or, or marginalized groups. So I, I think the really the, the concept of real world data and real world evidence became a lot more mainstream during COVID. So data and data science and um, all of these conversations we had around numbers, they were no longer restricted to experts. So for the most part, the layperson became much more aware of statistics relevant to infectious disease. I think a couple of years ago, if you asked people, what an OR number was. I would imagine you'd only kind of get a response from epidemiologists or public health experts. Now statistics, they're not kind of just reserved for scientists. They've just become a part of our daily vocabulary. So I think it's become a really important topic to discuss because it's a part of all of our lives now and we all need to be able to understand it to a certain extent. And I think that's also what makes it um, so important to be very mindful of what we communicate and how we communicate it, because there's so many different kinds of actors involved. And we are became, are we, coming, we are becoming increasingly aware of the dangers if they term misinterpreted. For example, if we don't know the context of how they were collected, or if there's limited comparability between data sets. And on the one hand, the responsibility lies with those who communicate that, but then there's also such an overwhelming amount of, of information. That's what the WHO has called an infodemic. And within that overwhelming amount of information, it can become very difficult to figure out what is correct, what isn't, and how to interpret that information. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, that's so important. I think there's been an extraordinary amount of data. And when we think of the principles of big data, we typically go with the describing it by the three Vs. So the velocity, so the kind of the speed that we were given data, the volume of that data, and also the variety of different data sources that were generated. I think they, they crossed different boards like public health surveillance. We monitored outbreaks. We forecasted you know, if we implemented measures, how we expected cases to reduce or deaths to reduce, there was a lot of forecasting. And those regular briefings, these situational briefings from government institutions as well, that we all became really familiar with. But with COVID, what became really, really important was also the area, um, another V to be added to those typical three Vs that we associate with big data was veracity. And that essentially just means the accuracy and the reliability of the data collected. I think at the start of the pandemic, we weren't really questioning so much the 
um, accuracy and reliability of some data. But as the pandemic continued to progress, I think there was a lot of work done by researchers and journalists and scientists to try and understand the data a little bit more. And they re started to slowly realize that there was some issues around quality of, of that data. I might just mention one good example of this. It was there was a Portuguese case study published in 2021 by Costa Santo Seal from the University of Porto. And they demonstrated various issues in the data that was published by their Ministry of Health in terms of quality of data, specifically the completeness and the accuracy of that data, and that there was no uniformity or continuity in data formats or variables and how their values changed from one data set to another. And this really, really limits its use in terms of surveillance, which we need in order to inform good decisions and, and good policies. So. I'm not calling out Portugal here. I'm just, this is just a really good case study. I think we've seen very similar data quality issues across Europe and across the world. And we've started and hopefully will learn from those issues and put in new practices that will help us overcome them a, a small bit going forward. And I think that's what's really important. Well, thank you both for a great discussion. I heard this joke, you know, since the start of the pandemic, everyone became expert virologists, data um, scientists. And I think it really shows how much it penetrated our lives. Anyway, since the start of the pandemic, we have seen many experts such as data scientists, mathematicians, modelers, public health professionals, virologists, and many more together and analyzing the pandemic and finding solutions. Would you say that this unprecedented events resulting in tremendous uh, collaboration between the fields has brought any positive aspects for future thinking about complex situations and i'm also curious what was the what was the role of social sciences in all of this yeah i can i can try and answer that i think i think the covid pandemic has presented us with this platform or opportunity to collaborate which is really important as, as researchers uh, as well as the vast amount of data that we have available and um, typically that data is usually kept for mathematicians or bioinformatics, kind of more technically skilled kind of experts. But in terms of kind of testing and evaluating non-pharmaceutical interventions and pharmaceutical interventions that we implemented during COVID, we need more than just that collaboration with technicians in terms of, of data science and exploration of data science. So I believe like a continued collaboration is really important across the sciences. Uh, and we are beginning to incorporate big data in research methods. So we have these really large national repositories of data now that require the technical expertise of the mathematicians, the biostatisticians to analyze, but the appropriate translation of those insights is really, really needs to be enriched and driven by other sciences. So this hasn't always been traditional research practice. And um, re researchers tend in a lot of cases to work within their own disciplines and their, within their own kind of labs. But we've we seen a vast, like an increase because open access to data and open access to publications was pushed during the pandemic. So we could kind of try and work together to come up with solutions. There was over 400,000 publications on coronavirus in 2020 in the year that it all first began. And, and many of these investigations were led by data scientists and only kind of data scientists. And at the start, this created a lot of 
confusion because some of the findings were misinterpreted and they really, really required that multidisciplinary approach, particularly from the perspective of social scientists and those people kind of understand the dynamics of how society functions in order for the data in- insights to be properly and effectively understood. Uh, I think we know and a part of the, the Common Forum project were really, really focused on misinformation. And I think you know misinterpretation can be really dangerous and can contribute to the circulation of, of misinformation. I very much agree, Neith. I think we'll get into misinformation and misinterpretations a bit later, but I, I do think that the data by itself, the, the pure numbers, they cannot explain everything. We do need the social sciences to provide context to the numbers and the pure statistics. Um, and ideally that happens in, a, in an interdisciplinary collaboration where we can gain a better understanding of the experience of different social groups, for example. So we know, for example, that some groups were more exposed during the pandemic than others. That includes healthcare workers or other frontline workers uh, in supermarkets and so on. And they have very individual lived experiences. And to understand those, we need social science, but we can also see that reflected in the numbers to some degree. And I think that's also what makes the Covinform project so interesting because we bring together this data science approach to statistics, but we also uh, complement that with social science research, with qualitative research, with case studies, and really dive deep into those experiences and try, and try to provide some context. And that will also be reflected in our outcomes. Thank you. I think both of what you said really highlights how interdisciplinary collaboration can aid in approaching complex situations also in more intersectional way. But let's circle back to the data. How can we actually leverage the knowledge obtained from data analysis? And what are the areas that adopt data-driven decision-making? Yeah, I think it's, it's again, reiterated that point that it's really important for the data scientists and then the public health teams to carefully translate the insights from their data to government officials who have primarily been responsible for communicating that information then to the public. In in some countries, these periodic situational updates, so these daily kind of press releases, or they could be weekly or, or at different frequencies, were typically drawing information from health records, from central databases within these countries, rather than presenting them based on population estimates. And this can lead to case rates appearing much higher depending on the population you're reporting on. And I think understanding these intricacies around reporting of data and understanding how the data has been analyzed and presented is really, really important. I think knowing the proportion of people within certain groups, whether it's by geography or by social characteristics, needs to be reflected in those outputs. And and that was really hard at the start of the pandemic because the data wasn't disaggregated by these features. So we didn't understand really what the data was telling us. So I think saying the right number, describing the right measure over the right time period, giving necessary context and conveying the limitations and uncertainty in the data as well is really, really important. So we've seen this kind of with how governments have reported data on unvaccinated. There are many, maybe many reasons why people choose not to take the vaccine, but this isn't usually reflected in the communication. So there can be then a negative connotation around people who chose not to be vaccinated because it can be presented or communicated in a particular way. So I think statistical producers are people who 
create these data reports needs to guide their audience as well. So whoever it might be on how the data can and cannot be used. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And we'll get into the to the topic of stigmatization that can happen if they aren't uh, communicated transparently in a moment. But for now, I think it's really important to reflect back to the last episode on, on communication and how if data isn't communicated in a transparent and in an understandable way that can lead to, to misinformation, to stigmatization, and even to contribute to a social divide. But how can we ensure that the data is not only reflecting on different vulnerabilities, but it's also accessible to people from different vulnerable groups. Again, I can reflect back on the past two episodes where we have touched upon this subject, but we know that people from different social groups have different information behaviors. And uh, we also know that particularly people from minority groups uh, often have made discriminatory experiences with authorities or with uh, certain communicators, so they don't trust information communicated by them. And There's also other examples, but what it boils down to ultimately is that we need different forms of communication to reach out to different social groups. So one size does not fit all. Uh, is what we've uh, touched upon in the last episode. And that is also, that also needs to apply to the data that is communicated to the public. We have to consider that data may be interpreted and acted upon differently by different social groups. And that is also important because different social groups may have different risk perceptions and therefore behave differently and react differently to the data. Yeah, I think... Um... It's it's really important how we how we label different things and how we communicate the data. And I think in most countries we had determined the, these criteria for vulnerability, specifically say clinical vulnerability during the pandemic. And for national public health, it had to be quite general to meet the needs of, of most. But it also presented a lot of assumptions. Now, I think, for example, in older adults. To, to label all people over 65 years as vulnerable doesn't kind of consider the complexity of those person-centric factors. I think most people over 65 would not see themselves as, as being vulnerable. Uh, and, and the level of risk for people over 65 needed to probably be considered a little bit more broadly. And I, I think if you think of different factors that are forming someone someone's life, the kind of their ability to live independently, their social supports, their environment, whether they're living independently, their digital literacy, which became extremely important during COVID, you know, their ability to engage socially online, to pay for bills if they needed to online, to shop for food online, their family dynamics. So I think there's different scales of risk, uh, not kind of blanket determination of vulnerability. Uh, and those, you know, There, there are different kind of, if they were retired, for example, they, they might have been at less risk by reduced exposure to workplace environments. So it's all very, very complex. And, and I know the high level government interventions or measures had to be at that kind of high level. But I think when we're presenting this data, we need to understand as well that not everyone can be, you know, neatly fit into these different, different categories. That is such an important point, especially those assumptions you mentioned, because The data may indicate that certain groups are vulnerable, and that may be done to protect those groups, but it doesn't necessarily reflect on how these groups may see themselves. So, as you said, we need to be very, very careful in how we assign such labels and how we communicate such findings, not to stigmatize or marginalize already marginalized groups. Yeah, I, I think when we talk about data and COVID, I think one word that's come up quite frequently is the term transparency It is often used. And, and it is defined 
just to kind of give some context of, of how I'm defining transparency, but that it's free from pretense or, or deceit. So in terms of COVID data, cases, deaths, vaccination rates, it is expected that governments are committed to act lawfully and to comply with these ethical standards in a way that they manage data and communicate that information uh, to, in to increase that benefit then for the general public and we can avoid risks there and harms to their lives. And that's kind of central. When it comes to transparency in data, it's really key that we understand the full effects of the pandemic in certain different environments. We've seen many situations where it may have been presented that there was case, case outbreaks, areas that are kind of hot spots, and they were associated with particular groups, usually kind of vulnerable groups or vulnerable kind of working situations as well, where people were working in overcrowded conditions where they actually couldn't implement the measures that were being encouraged by the government. And then there was a lot of stigmatization then towards these groups saying that these are kind of not following or not abiding by these regulations, but actually they're not given the ability to do that in the first place so I think there needs to be kind of effective oversight provide meaningful and kind of accurate data to avoid that and to be extremely transparent about what the data is actually collected for and what it's been used for there's been a couple of um, examples particularly in the U.S. where the public health groups have not published large amounts of their data for various reasons mainly related to quality assurance of the data, which I think then just gives this sense or air of a, of a lack of transparency as they're not fully giving all of the information, even if it's with the intention that, okay, we're not fully sure if the information is of a good quality, so we don't want to share it, but they haven't expressed that. So I think in terms of clarity and public engagement, and that's really important. And one last point I might mention is there's a really good program in, in, um, in the EU called um, Eurosocial, where they've led this transparency and access to information research and their main objective is to this one section of it that's focused really on active transparency and the right to health and they have started to publish some recommendations on um, publication criteria for data and supervision of published information and forms of information dissemination as well so there's a lot of active work in that area but I think it's important that we continue that work. Thank you super insightful you mentioned well, obviously transparency. So I'm curious, what are some of the risks when comparing data, for example, you know, different um, countries and their COVID-19 infection rates or vaccine effectivity? What should we look for before jumping straight into comparing different numbers? And you already mentioned some of it, but um, I would like to highlight these recommendations. I mean, the comparability thing is one aspect, but I think of reflecting back to what Neef just pointed out, there's a couple of things that we discussed with uh, government and public health representatives that we interviewed as part of our COVID-informed research. And there's uh, some examples where they, for example, they mentioned that there's, there were cases of clusters that appeared among certain populations, such as postal workers or migrant groups. And this was caused by overcrowded living position, uh, by overcrowded living conditions or working conditions that if these data, if this data would have been communicated without providing any context, it could have led to stigmatization. So what we do see here is that, yes, there is a need for transparency, but we also have a responsibility to provide context information and guidance for the interpretation of these data. And that is 
particularly important because we're talking about collecting massive, massive amounts of personal data that has happened throughout the pandemic. Yeah, I think that's really important to touch on that as well. I think when it comes to, there's been a lot of conversation around GDPR, data protection, this kind of mass surveillance of populations. And I think data protection principles always allow for balancing the interests at stake. So obviously this was a pandemic situation. So there's across Europe, and um, there was several states that imposed a state of emergency to manage the pandemic. Uh, this type of situation then leads to measures that obviously have restricted our human rights and our fundamental freedoms over the last couple of years. And that also includes our right to data protection. And, and we had to share our data uh, at that time and throughout that period, such as our movement data, our vaccination data, if we tested positive. Um, and there was legitimate reason um, to do that, you know, particularly pre-vaccine or when new variants were identified. But the requirement to share this data, it, it really required considered legal assessment and the proportionality of what could be implemented at that time. And it is acknowledged that these measures and data collection practices should be time limited. Uh, and we did see this across most countries where there would be something implemented for a specific period of time. And I think conversation is coming up in that again, because some measures have been lifted and the pandemic in some countries has been seen as to be finished or, or complete, but some of the data collection practices are still ongoing. So I think that will be a conversation that will continue for another, another period of time, because again, our data protection rights still need to be to be in place and again that idea of proportionality of, of risk as well needs to be weighed up with what we're sharing and what can be done with that data well thank you i think one of you mentioned um the covid farm research and i will take this opportunity to talk about our unique methodology we use in the project so could you tell me more about the risk assessment methodology and what makes it distinctive compared to other research in this area yeah, um, I, I can I can cover that. I think the traditional risk assessment model, um, it usually quantifies risk on the probability of specific consequences. So in terms of COVID, there'd be cases and cases and deaths, I suppose, uh, and the likelihood of an of an event leading to these consequences. Whereas it doesn't take into consideration typically the th the threat of that happening or the vulnerability of the system or the circumstance. And we know there's lots of different vulnerabilities when it came to COVID-19 and trying to assess that risk is quite difficult if we're going to apply a traditional risk assessment framework. So there is other ways where you can characterize risk that it's a little bit more complicated, particularly as there's a lot of uncertainties with COVID. And also with COVID, it changed over time and those different response measures, it wasn't one particular event, it was a series of changing events. So for the, the Covinform project, we evaluated lots of just different risk assessment models that have been created across the last kind of two years. But we wanted to focus particularly on modeling vulnerability and um, not just clinical vulnerabilities, economic, social vulnerabilities as well. And look at these different indicators of vulnerability in the COVID-19 context. These um, were is that kind of assessed to evaluate different kind of definitions and quantification of vulnerability, which is really, really difficult because vulnerability is different depending on a circumstance or a population. So most models address kind of some form of vulnerability. 
However, they don't take into account the ability of a population or a country to respond and adapt over time as the pandemic develops. And that's what's really, really important. If we think about risk at the start of the pandemic, our risk profile is totally different now at this stage. So the integration of resilience indicators into some of these models will help us to better understand that level of risk over the course of a pandemic. What's really, really unique about the Coffin Forum Risk Assessment methodology is we're really acknowledging the limitations of structured quantitative data and the poor data practices that have kind of been in place for the last how many ever, uh, decades. But we can use you know, the data that we have and it's limited to these really kind of concrete statistical relationships. But we need to understand the broader teams and the relationships of all these indicators in a little bit more detail. So what we are aiming to do is to address those limitations to our qualitative research with vulnerable groups. And this will really, really help contextualize the risk assessment outputs. So it's adding that voice on top of the data that we've kind of described at the start of the podcast as being kind of so important. And that's so important because vulnerability is just very difficult to define because there's just different ways of interpreting it. And I think another aspect that makes COVID inform unique and our methodology unique is that we bring together all kinds of different research activities, not just the data science and social science side of things, but also within the social science team, we have different disciplines represented. Um, so we're conducting case studies on different vulnerable groups, for example, healthcare workers, older people, frontline workers in supermarkets. But then we also look at public health campaigns and we have even conducted analysis of memes on how they were used to cope with the pandemic. This is really interesting. And I want to ask you further about memes, though. We have recently published a bi-monthly report called Viruses of the Minds, Coping and Joking about COVID-19. As per usual, you can find these reports on our website. Uh, but could you please uh, summarize the results of the research you conducted? And was it challenging to analyze such diverse pool of samples? I'm happy to do so. Memes are one of the examples on how we want to use different kinds of data on our project to study the same phenomenon with like, different points of view. And Mava has mentioned this already in the last episode. Our focus was to gain an understanding of who, how humor was used as a coping mechanism. So what we did is we collected memes across 10 countries in Europe, and we then conducted an explorative analysis. So every partner collected memes within their country from different channels, such as Twitter, Reddit, Facebook, and so on. And we then thematically coded all of these memes and tried to identify structures and categories within the data set. And we could find, for example, that in all countries, memes were used to criticize the behavior of other members of society. For example, at the beginning of the pandemic, when there was hoarding of toilet paper, and later on when people were refusing to wear masks correctly. And other memes that were really specific to the national context. There were lots of memes making fun of politicians, of measures that were introduced. So all in all, what we could observe in the memes that we analyzed is that they were used to share experiences in this unique situation, to create a sense of togetherness. And we could really observe similarities across the national borders. And that was a way of, of coping with this unfamiliar and uncertain situation. Okay, I'm curious because you must have seen thousands of memes during, um, you know, doing your analysis. Was there a specific one that you were fond of or that comes to your mind? 
Well, there were so many, it really made me laugh. Uh, and I think that's what got me so interested in the first place. Because during the first lockdown, when I was we were all just sitting at home uh, during lockdown, faced with this unprecedented situation, memes are one of the things that I was looking at all day. And they gave me a feeling of a sort of shared global experience. We were all facing the same issues, the same fears. And that really helped me. It was a way of coping and making fun of the situation, but in a good-mannered way. I'm not making fun about other people's experiences of fear, but sort of sharing of those experiences. And that also got me interested from a scientific point of view, because there is so much to tell about oneself, but also about other members of society in the way that they choke about a situation that they're facing. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I really enjoyed memes as a tool to reconnect with my friends and, you know, to have this shared experience and laughing, not with someone, but with other people as well. So it was a really good way to get through the hard times. Anyway, in the first answer, you already mentioned that interdisciplinary collaboration will influence how we approach data science. Do you see any lessons learned from the pandemic? And are there any opportunities for data science to evolve in the future? Um, yeah, I think so. I think in, in some cases, it really increased public knowledge in the data that drives policy decisions, which I think is really important. I think, at, you know, at some points, particularly if you're not involved in, you know, policy, policy writing or policy making or informing policy, Sometimes you can just see see these recommendations and not really know how they're justified or where maybe they came to certain conclusions. So I think it highlights the need for public understanding, but then also from the policy side of things that there needs to be integration and harmonization of those data sources and open access to data and standardization and collection and reporting. And this would really help us, particularly in the EU, to better communicate across different EU countries. Because what we've seen during the pandemic was that action was needed within countries, but also across countries. And it was difficult to do that when the data wasn't available, say, in the same formats. So the usability of it just wasn't quite as good. I think in terms of more novel ways to use the data, we now, we used quite a lot of mobility data during the pandemic and behavioral data, data that we collect on our smart devices. And I think there's opportunity for us to use this data for social benefit. I think a lot of the times it might have been kind of used more for kind of corporate kind of driven goals, whereas I think actually we can really make good use of this data from a public health perspective in terms of, for example, the development of kind of the ideas of these kind of smart cities and improving healthcare resources and pharmaceutical advancement is the two areas which I think it will be most important and impactful. It's a very important point. And I think on top of that, what we have learned very drastically during the pandemic is for structures to collect those data were missing. And that's something that cannot just be changed overnight. So what I learned, for example, in the fieldwork conducted in Austria is that some health data that we have here that cannot be processed and linked to, to other data easily because of data protection reasons or data sharing uh, hesitancy. And this is because the structure is missing. There's nothing that we can do about it just like so. And there's also some resistance by the involved actors to change this. So some, some aspects couldn't be analyzed in Austria, some data couldn't be brought together. And that meant that we just had a blind spot about certain things because these structures weren't put in place in the first place. Well, thank you both. Unfortunately, our time together is coming to an end. I really don't like this part of the podcast. However, 
in the next episode, we are going to talk more about different inequalities. And I'm really interested in your take on how to make data science more inclusive, not only externally, but also internally. What would be your recommendations to make the scientific field more diverse, accessible and inclusive? I think in terms of accessibility, I think that's really key because now we have access to all of this data. And I think the worst thing we can do is present it in an Excel bar chart. I think there's been lots of really creative ways during the pandemic to visualize the data, which makes people want to engage with it and makes people want to understand it a little bit more. And um, so I think there's some really good examples of storytelling. And um, with data, there's one particular website that I find to be quite nice. It's called informationisbeautiful.net. And I think that we have probably need to bring in that kind of creative aspect to make people kind of want to engage a little bit more with data. I think the visual brain definitely beats the rational brain. And I think they've got some really good visualization examples. And I think another aspect that we already touched upon earlier is that this interdisciplinary is just so key to understand the interconnectedness of different factors that maybe cannot just be seen from the data themselves. And here I would also like to add that I think it's really, really important to reflect on the fact that the data themselves are not objective. We make decisions based on what kind of data we collect, what kind of data we see as relevant in the first place. And that reflects back on how we interpret them. But we look at the data from a certain position. They can be instrumentalized and it really matters who we are and why we collect the kind of data that we collect. But if we reflect on this, that gives us a chance to identify structural inequalities and dive and, and that I think is, is really an opportunity that we're faced with at the moment. And I'm really looking forward to the next episode where we'll dive deeper into those inequalities. Well I couldn't agree more. Anyway, dear team Anim, thank you so much for agreeing to record this episode of this podcast with me. Have a lovely day. And to our listeners, thank you for spending the time of your day with us. And I will be looking forward to, you know, being in your headphones next month. Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye.